Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large of EdSource. Lewis, suspension and expulsion rates have been a hot issue in this state, and this week, the Department of Education released new data on the rates. You took a look at them. What, what did you find? Well, John, this is actually something that people have been waiting for for quite a while because the last suspension and expulsion rates we had was for the 2014-15 school year, and the release of the 15-16 school year was delayed, and we were unable to really see whether the trends were continuing. But this week, the state released two years' worth of data through the 2016-17 school year. So this is actually giving us a good sense of the trends over the last five years. And I have to say, this is an area where the state had a policy, has a policy to reduce suspensions and expulsions, and it's actually succeeded. Suspension and expulsion rates have actually decreased by almost 50% over the last five years. That's an impressive number, and I know that the data had been two years behind, which really hampered efforts to understand what was going on in the school. So it brings us up to date, right? Well, absolutely. Now, we just got these results this week, so we're kind of digging deeper into them. But one of the things that's also impressive, and I think one of the things that this policy was intended to address, was the disproportionately high rates of suspensions for African-American students and Latino students. Now, those rates have come down, but they are still significantly higher than the suspension rates for white students and Asian students. And just to give you an idea, I think one of the things we did take a closer look at was the suspensions and expulsion rates in Los Angeles Unified, which is the largest district by far. About 10% of the students in the state are in LA Unified. So let me just give you an idea of, of where things stand there. Out of close to 60,000 African-American students in LAUSD, about 1,400 students, that's about 2.4% of African-American students were suspended. Out of close to 500,000 Latino students, about 4,000 were suspended. And that's even a lower suspension rate. It's a 0.7% suspension rate. And then if you go to expulsions, Out of about 60,000 African-American students, only 14 were expelled last year. And out of 500,000 Latino students, about 100 were expelled. Now, some people argue that one kid is too much. But nonetheless, these are pretty low numbers. Conversely, however, we do see that amongst African-American students, they comprise just a little under 9% of the total enrollment in the district, but almost one-third of the suspensions. So there's still a ways to go in terms of reducing the disparities, but the state is making some progress in that direction. LA Unified's rate would be lower, for the most part, by all those ethnic groups and racial groups than the state average, right? And absolutely. I think LAUSD has been particularly aggressive in moving forward on trying to reduce these suspension and expulsion rates. And so, of course, that has an impact on the rates for the entire state just because it's such a large district. There have been changes in the laws, too, right, that should result in lower suspension rates. Well, one of the things that has happened with K-3 elementary grades, 
the state did ban the use of this term willful defiance. This is kids who are disruptive in class, who defying authority, very vague category that particularly affected the historically disadvantaged student groups, Latinos and African-American students. So the legislature a couple of years ago banned the use of willful defiance, but just for the elementary grades. But what we've seen is that the use of willful defiance as a category for suspension has dropped dramatically by 80% in most cases, in almost every racial and ethnic group. And so that does suggest that there's less arbitrary suspensions that a lot of advocates had felt put particularly students of color at greater risk. So this does reflect the state's attention through its new accountability system to school climate and overall atmosphere in a school. But how do you know whether or not discipline problems are still popping up in classrooms, perhaps? Is there any way of knowing which districts and which schools really have programs that address the underlying causes of suspensions versus simply saying, we want to reduce the rate and we will do that. Principles, cut it out. Well, you make a good point that as part of the new accountability system, the local control funding formula, that one of the measures that schools will be assessed on is this school climate and student engagement issue. And the way this is partially measured is through suspension and expulsion rates. So school districts are under pressure to reduce these rates. And that is in state law. I think we do know that many school districts across the state have introduced alternative discipline practices. There's something called positive behavior intervention systems, which really targets different kids at different levels, depending on the level of offense. And then restorative justice has become increasingly popular in many districts across the state. But conversely, we don't really know what has happened to students who in the past may have been suspended or may have been expelled for certain behaviors that were disruptive. And uh, we can't be sure that those students are getting some kind of alternative intervention that's tying them in more closely to the school environment. Because really the purpose of this is to keep kids in school. And so if you're not providing the support services for kids, regardless of whether they were or weren't suspended, that is a problem. We've written a number of stories about restorative justice and positive interventions. And we've also discussed it at a past symposiums, and I'm convinced they work. But we also hear from teachers in some districts that's saying, we're not getting these kinds of programs, but we're told to reduce our suspensions. We need training in this kind of program also. Well, I think that's right. And we have heard anecdotal reports from principals who just feel they can't suspend or expel a student because they would look bad and they have to keep the numbers down in terms of the whole accountability system. And that is a problem. If a student does need some kind of intervention, and schools don't have the resources. So that is an ongoing issue, very hard to kind of measure because this is happening at a school level. And so to really track what's happening with individual kids is difficult. But I do think the largest story here is that California is moving in the right direction in terms of keeping kids in school. The research is pretty compelling that kids who are pushed out, kids who are suspended or expelled are less likely to graduate 
And then that raises the whole issue of the school-to-prison pipeline. So really, the goal is to keep kids in school and work with them and make sure they succeed. Because a lot of these kids don't want to be in school in the first place. So pushing them out is actually not helping them and is not helping the state achieve its goals. Precisely. You can't get kids ready for college and careers if they're not in school. Before we leave this topic altogether, the State Board of Education will be having its meeting next week in Sacramento. Will this issue of suspensions and expulsions come up? It will be discussed. You know, it's part of a new accountability system, the California School Dashboard we've talked about. It will be one of the criteria, along with graduation rates and student test scores, to determine which school districts and student subgroups will be receiving county assistance if they're performing poorly. One thing that we do know is that because test scores on a smarter balanced test in English language arts and math were really flat this year, the projections are there will be more districts needing assistance than last year. And that will be one of the big topics that the board will discuss next week. Another issue that will be coming up next week at the state board meeting will be that the board has to approve a recommended list of textbooks based on the history and social science standards. And one of the controversial issues has been how lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people are represented in those textbooks. I believe this is the first state that will actually be looking at how to include representation of LGBT people in these textbooks. Yes, and we're happy to have with us Teresa Harrington, who is reporting on this story now. Hi, nice to be here. So, Teresa, what have you found in your inquiry so far? Well, basically, there were 12 different textbooks that were uh, submitted by different publishers, and the initial committees of reviewers approved all of them. And then the um, Instructional Quality Commission had some hearings, and there was a group of people from the FAIR Act Implementation Coalition, which is based on the fact that there was this law passed in 2011 called the FAIR Act, which was for fair, accurate, inclusive, and respectful representations of people with disabilities and people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transsexual in the state's history and social studies curriculum. And they objected to several things in some of the textbooks, and they actually um, recommended against the two textbooks that were recommended. And then the commission actually agreed with them and is planning to recommend that the state board reject these two textbooks. So it's a multi-step process for reviewing textbooks, right? They get panels of teachers with an expert to review the text. And then that goes before something called the Instructional Quality Commission, which is chaired by former state superintendent Bill Honig. And then they make a recommendation to the state board. But as opposed to the old days, these are just recommendations, right? Districts aren't given money that they have to choose from a list. They can use whatever textbooks they want. I, I, am I right there? Yes, you're right that they can use whatever textbooks they want. And part of the controversy that I foresee coming in the future is that there are people on both sides who will be going directly to school boards next and saying, hey, we either want these textbooks or we don't want these textbooks based on what they're seeing and what they want their children to be studying. So the advocates for the LGBT community have already had an impact, haven't they, in terms of their own recommendations to publishers and the fact that they, the reviewer panels have, in fact, accepted or endorsed these, many of these changes. 
Right. Yeah. It's very interesting during this process. Uh, the publishers have submitted their own responses saying, okay, we agree to make these recommended changes. And in some cases, they may have suggested slight alterations based on the grade level and their own protocols and editorial policies. But in large part, yes, they definitely have made a difference. Houghton, Harcourt, Mifflin is a major publisher, right? And Correct. so it's too... It's two textbooks for a middle school. Do not have the recommendation of the uh, Instructional Quality Commission. So that For elementary and middle. For elementary and middle. So the state board has to decide that. Right. And interestingly, one of them, the, the one for middle school, they actually highlighted the fact that there weren't enough LGBT uh, representations. But the one for elementary school, that wasn't actually one of the things that they called out. They actually called out just the fair representations of different ethnic groups. And that includes ethnic groups and the LGBT community, but it wasn't specified. And just to clarify... The state board only recommends textbooks for elementary and middle school. They don't. They leave it up to schools to choose their own textbooks and curriculum at the high school level. Yes, and that's for every subject area, not just history, social studies. So it's it's tough in terms of finding the balance between how much you discuss LGBT folks in history textbooks. It's a matter of degree and, and the importance in how you describe it, right? Well, the interesting thing is there are some historical figures that apparently were gay or bisexual or transgender that people didn't even know, you know, had those different sexual orientations. And so now uh, it's very important to the FAIR Act Coalition that that information be included so that society will recognize the contributions of these people. And ultimately, they're hoping it's going to cut down on bullying. Well, there's going to be a whole day set aside next Thursday, so I would expect that the state board is expecting dozens, if not hundreds, of folks on this issue to come. Right, and uh, there is a Dropbox link that's online of all the public comments that they're accepting, and there are something like 18 pages of comments that they've been receiving. There are a lot of people out there that are sending comments. I'm not sure how many will actually show up to the board meeting. And another issue... It's not just this particular issue that's on the table. Also, the Hindu community is concerned about how their history has been portrayed. They feel that there's been too much of an emphasis on the caste system and not enough on the positive contributions uh, that uh, Hindu people have made throughout history. Right. Some of the comments that I've read said that they felt that some of the portrayals were in some ways disrespectful and not accurate. And this does have an impact nationally because, particularly in terms of the LGBT issue, that this is a first. And so how these textbooks deal with that issue would have an impact on other states who undoubtedly will also be taking this on in the future. Right. And the Fair Act Coalition said that they hope this is just the beginning and they want to spread to other states. Well, it's been a very lengthy process that has been going on years now and will no doubt continue. So we look forward to your future reporting on this, Teresa. Thanks a lot, John. Well, John, let's get to something that's actually happened and seems like good news for California. It looks like California is going to become the second state to reward its high school graduates for being engaged in the civic process, both in the school and in their community broadly. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. It will be called the Seal of Civic Engagement, 
and it will be like a seal, like the seal of biliteracy, if you speak multiple language, which students can receive, in recognition of the public service or volunteerism, internships you've done. But it's also intended to encourage serious discussions of civics in schools. And so we don't know what the criteria will be yet. It will be determined over the next two years, and the actual seal won't come out until 2021. So it may be students who have accumulated, did all their courses well in history and government and civics, as well perhaps in the new history science test, which we haven't developed yet, but that may be a criterion too. But certainly advocacy and public service will be important. But why do they want to put it on the high school diploma? I mean, is this supposed to make these students more qualified for entering the job market, for getting into college? Because this is actually going to be on the diploma. Well, it's really part of the revival of civics education that uh, recognition, the task force on civic engagement came out in 2014 and said, we really have a crisis. Young people aren't voting. They don't see it as their responsibility to get involved in the community. We really need to deal with this. I think it's intended to make them better citizens and active throughout their lives. And I think the questions will be, do we have, say, a gold badge, a silver badge, a bronze badge, so that we really encourage many students to get involved? And perhaps they may not have this outstanding internship, but perhaps they did in their classes do moot court, and they went and attended their own city council meetings, and they advocated well within their school government. All these things perhaps may be factors. But let me ask you, I think we're at an age right now where a lot of students are pretty cynical about the political process, uh, particularly people who are very concerned about how Donald Trump became president and the policies that are being enacted. Do you think that this will help students overcome some of that cynicism? I think that we have no choice but to. And I talked with Michelle Herzog from the Los Angeles County Office of Education, who is a key national figure in civic education. And she said, yeah, these days we don't have very good models coming out of Washington. What she said was, we really need to set different examples in our own schools and show through their involvement in their local communities that change can happen. I just have to ask you, though, this thing will only, this seal of, what is it called again, civic engagement? Exactly. This will only be available to the graduates in the class of 2021. That's several years away. Why, why is it going to take so long to get this going? I can't tell you why it will take two years to hash out the criteria, but it is part of a larger state effort to improve civic education, and I think we'll see more involvement along the way before 2021. Well, John, thanks for your civic engagement this week by participating in this podcast. I think we all deserve a, at least a bronze badge this week, Lewis. <laughs> and that uh, just about wraps it up for this week in California education. If you like what you hear, please help others find us by giving us a review on iTunes. I'm here with John Fensterwald. And I'm Lewis Friedberg. I'm here with our producer, Sarah Tan. Thanks for listening and see you next week.